Thank you. Well, it would be a great help if you turn back in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, our second reading tonight. And we come to a uh, a one-off tonight. It's uh, Palm Sunday. It's also April Fool's Day. I don't know whether to take that as a compliment that I'm preaching on April Fool's Day. It's after 11 o'clock, so I think I'm okay. But do turn back to Philippians chapter 2. And let me read uh, verse 2 for us. Philippians 2, verse 2. Paul says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Well, I grew up in a small, sleepy town in rural Northamptonshire. Myself and my family attended our local parish church. Theologically, it was a liberal church run by a vicar who was nearing retirement. Now, outwardly, uh, like most churches, we were successful and uh, fairly functional. But when I was 16 or 17, a a controversy arose that split the church down the middle. And it was to do with the vicar, who was nearing retirement. Along with the local bishop, who was also nearing retirement, our vicar wanted to be remembered by us, his congregation, by having a stone carving made of his head. This carving was going to be installed on our, church, on our church wall for all to see, alongside with the head of the local bishop. <laughs> Not surprisingly, there was an outcry by those of us in the church who disagreed with his actions, verging on idolatry, we thought. And we were at loggerheads with his supporters. It was a very sad time. It, it actually ended up in court. It was a very sad time. It split the church down the middle. See, it is all too easy, isn't it, to split a church. Now, of course, there are some things that it is surely right to make a stand over when it comes to non-negotiable primary issues of the gospel. But when it comes to secondary matters or politics or personalities, it is sadly all too easy to let personal opinion become divisive. What kinds of issues am I thinking of? Well, it can be all sorts of things, can't it? Doctrinal issues, issues of style, of presentation, liturgical issues, personal issues. There are all kinds of things, aren't there, that can divide even a gospel-centred congregation. Now, I think we're wonderfully united here at Forward. I do. And I I think we've got to give thanks for that. It's a wonderful thing that we're we're so united here. But if we're going to maintain that unity in the years to come, the months to come, well, it's worth asking the question... Uh, what will help us to maintain that unity? Well, the passage before us, uh, if we uh, take it to heart, will help us to stay united, and it will help us to avoid division. Now, Philippians 2 forces on us a question. When it comes to secondary issues, what is the ultimate reason for disunity? What lies behind it? Well, it's a shock. It's pride. Pride. Because look at verse 3. Look at what is to characterise a gospel-centred church. Do you see that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. See, Paul gets right to the heart of the issue. Humility, it is the key to unity. Which means that pride will destroy unity. Now, unity was obviously an important issue for the Philippian church. Just look over the page to chapter 4 and verse 2. 
chapter 4 and verse 2. And here we meet Euodia and Syntyche, two of Paul's key gospel helpers. And yet, do you see, they got distracted from gospel ministry. How? By disagreement. So all the way through the letter, Paul is urging the Philippians back to gospel unity. How does he do it? Well, back to chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins in the, in the original Greek with a therefore. It's not there in the NIV. But Paul is referring us in this passage back to what he's just said. Uh, just look back to 1 verse 27. It sums it up. Uh, Paul has just told the Philippians, do you see, to live a life worthy of the gospel. Not only individually, but corporately. Because look at what a life lived worthy of the gospel looks like. Verse 27, it looks like unity, contending together for the gospel. You see, Paul is saying to the Philippians, and he's saying it to us, stay united around the gospel as you contend for it together. Which, of course, raises a question. How do we stay united? Because we will disagree over some things. Well, again, the answer in verse 3 Humility. Humility. God says to us, I think, tonight, he says to us from this, Christchurch forward, be humble. Be humble, because it is the key to your unity. Christchurch forward, be humble, because it is the key to your unity. Now, I want to pause here, because pride is a danger for all of us. And do you notice the arena in which pride operates in these verses? It is the arena of relationships. So I want you to have a think. I want us to have a think around the church. Think of the groups that you're involved in week by week. Your home group, your discipleship group, staff team, your small group, church family prayer, lighthouse. Think of the rotors that you're on week by week. Coffee rotor, music group rotor. Sunday school teaching, Friday club. And let me ask you, how is your pride, how is my pride in these groups? So think, when others are praised and you're not, at the end of your groups, when the prayers come, when others are prayed for but you're ignored, how do you feel? What about your relationships in those groups? Who are the people that you struggle with? The people perhaps you disagree with, maybe theologically. Perhaps it's the leader, maybe it's somebody else in the group. Maybe there are people you secretly wish weren't there and you just try and avoid them week by week. I wonder, who are they? Who are these people? Perhaps a name or a face is popping into your mind just now. Well, hold on to that name, hold on to that face as we go through this evening. I think if we're honest, we all struggle with pride. We all want to be the best, don't we? And I include myself in that. Now, I didn't pray at the start. That was deliberate. I want to pause now and and just pray that God would work in our hearts in these particular relationships that we've thought of. So will you bow your heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you indeed for our unity at Christchurch Forwards. Thank you that you care very much about our unity. And you know, Lord, that we struggle with pride. And we pray tonight that your word would search our hearts and, and show us where pride has taken a grip. But we pray to you that it would change us. Please, Lord, would you humble us tonight? But not just that, would you inspire us uh, with the gospel? That we'd be a church united, uh, full of people who are humble. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
So God says to us tonight, Christ Church forward, be humble because it is the key to your unity. Well, what will that humility look like? What will it look like? Well, we're going to look at two points this evening. The mark of humility and the model of humility. The mark and the model. The mark of humility then, first of all. Verses 3 and 4. The mark of humility. What does humility look like? Well, the mark of humility really is two words. Consider others. Consider others. You see that in verse 3. Consider others. And let's just think about that. That gets at our motives, doesn't it? So verse 3, we're not to do anything out of selfish ambition. Notice how inclusive that is. Nothing out of selfish ambition. Not doing anything that will promote my interest at the expense of yours. Doing nothing out of vain conceit, Paul says. Not doing anything that will make me look good. See, humility means not having selfish motives. Which is scary because, well, you can get away with pride because you can't see it. Now, most of you will know, I play the piano most weeks, or the organ. And, but, you, you see, you can't see my motives as I do that. And I'm quite glad, because, let me tell you, the temptation to play to the galleries is often very strong. I'm glad that you can't see my motives, because humility starts with motives. But it doesn't stay there. No, our motives, you see, govern our behaviour. Look at verse 4. If you're motivated by humility, well, other people will notice Because you won't be so concerned for your own interests, but others' interests. You'll care for people, will be interested in people. So the mark of humility, consider others, consider others. That word, consider, let's think about it. It's also translated count, count others. You see, humility, I guess, starts really in our minds with a mental calculation that other people, together with their desires, their opinions, their cares and their concerns, are more important and hold more weight than our own. But it's more than just a mental calculation. Notice, we're to consider others in humility. That gets to the heart. This is a heart thing. We're to be genuinely other person-centred. And you see, this is important because it's, it's possible to ape humility. It is possible to be a hypocrite and to pretend to be humble, but not to be really. And I think that there are versions of humility that look like humility, but are actually still self-centred. So I'm reminded of the character Uriah Heep in uh, David Copperfield by Dickens. Do you remember Uriah Heep? You know, oh, I'm ever so humble. I'm an humble man. You know, he said with sort of fingers crossed behind his back said with a false, pious smile. Maybe you've been thinking as we're going along tonight, oh, those proud people who cause division, I'm not like that, I'm humble. I'd never cause division. Not like them. We can so easily do that, can't we? And yet if we look down on people because they're proud, well, do you see? We're guilty of the very sin we condemn. See, pride is so deadly because it is so subtle, so insidious. And it comes when we, well, instead of considering others we consider ourselves more highly than we should. You see, we've got to get over ourselves. We've got nothing to be proud about, you see. Not, not really. But does that mean that we've got to hate ourselves? You see, there's another version of false humility that, that well, reminds me of, um, of the elf Dobby in Harry Potter. Remember Dobby? You know, he's always kind of going around whipping himself and doing himself down. Is that, is that you sometimes? 
It's, it's often me. But actually, that's still pride. I've often been guilty of this kind of humility as a musician. It happens in the moments after I play a concert or, or, or play the piano. People say, George, well done, that was wonderful, that was great, we really enjoyed it. And the temptation is for me to reply, oh, no, it wasn't really, it was rubbish. And to think that's being humble. But that kind of humility is really just inverted pride. Because, well, it's still self-centred. I just happen to be looking down on myself rather than up. But it's also dishonest. Another church leader has said that humility is basically honesty. And that's really helpful. Because for me to be humble in that situation would be to be honest and say, well, thanks, I guess I did play well. Thank you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Humility. Another definition of it I've heard is self-forgetfulness. You know, to forget yourself. Now, don't mishear me. To be humble isn't to lead yourself down a path of misery, but a path of freedom. Because to be able to forget yourself, well, it's one of the most liberating things in the world. It really is. It frees you to love others. It frees you to be taken up with others. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. He says, The happiest moments are those when we forget our precious selves, but have everything else instead. So the mark of humility. Consider others. And now this is a challenge, I think, at many levels. I wonder, what are you tempted to find pride in? Maybe your job, your career. Perhaps you've reached the top of your game and you're very gifted. Well, just because we're gifted, we've no excuse to look down on other people. Character is more important than gifts. This is also a challenge to the depth of our relationships, is it not? Because Paul says we'd look out for the, the interests of other people. Well, do we actually know what the interests of, of other people in our small group say actually are? Do we spend time with them? Do we talk to them? Do we know what their home situation is? Their struggles, their needs? Do we know what's on their prayer list at the moment? Uh, coffee time is a great time to, uh, to listen to people. It challenges the depth of our relationships. It challenges, too, the really difficult relationships in our lives. And, and we all have those. Just think back to the person perhaps you thought of at the start that you struggle with. See, maybe your problem is a disagreement. You disagree with the way they do things and you think you could do a much better job than they. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's a theological disagreement, maybe with somebody in your Bible study group. Well, can, let, me, let, let me say gently how much of our negative reactions to people is actually pride. Because even when we disagree with perhaps only 1% of what somebody does or says, pride will blind us to the 99% that we do agree on. Maybe it's in your family or your marriage. And you feel the other person just isn't pulling their weight. Maybe it's problems with your children. You want their respect and it bothers you you don't have it. Well, again, let me say gently, why does it bother you so? Are we objective? Are you being objective? How much of your being bothered is really just pride? Not that it's easy. God sometimes uses our relationships, as it were, to pour cold water onto our pride. But if he's doing that, well, he's blessing you. He's blessing you. So go with it. You see, that word consider is so instructive, and that is the way through, that we're to consider people that we find it difficult to get on with. Consider the good things about them. Make a list, write, write them down, and pray for them. It's very hard to look down on somebody when you're on your knees praying for them. 
You see, we've got to learn to hate pride. We've got to learn to hate it. Because pride, if anything, pride will keep us out of heaven. See, one of the best things you can pray each day is, Lord, please humble me today. And he will. He will. So God says to us tonight, Christchurch forward, be humble because it is the key to your unity. What will that humility look like? Well, firstly, the mark of humility, consider others. Consider others. But how are we to do that? I mean, pride goes so deep, doesn't it? We need a model. And so Paul gives us a model. And it's the ultimate model. Because if we're to become those who bear the mark of humility, well, secondly tonight, we need to think about the model of humility. The model. This is verses 6 to 11. The model of humility. If the mark of humility is to consider others, what's the model? Well, the model of humility is consider Christ. Consider Christ. Uh, It's interesting that the style changes in these verses from sort of um, letter to, to poetry. And that's deliberate. Paul wants to capture our imagination tonight with, uh, with the wonder of Jesus' humility. And notice in verse 5, if we're to be humble, we must have Jesus' attitude. If you like, humility was the road that Jesus had to travel. And his is the road that we must travel as well. And it's as though Paul in these verses gives us a kind of road map for humility, a road map. Here's what humility really looks like. Well, what do we learn about this road of humility from Jesus? Well, we learn that this road, road of humility is, if I can put it this way, a road without end. It's a road without end. Once you start down this road of humility, you don't stop. Jesus gives an example that was infinite in its extent. Well, you might think that you're quite a humble person. You see, how do we measure humility? How do we measure humility? Well, it depends on the height that you start from, how important you are. And it depends on the depth that you finish at, how low you're prepared to go. Well, consider the height that Jesus started from. Verse 6, Jesus was God himself, infinitely higher than any king or queen, in very nature God. He does whatever pleases him. The nations, they're a drop in a bucket compared to him. And yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Isn't that amazing? You see, most of us struggle for the limelight, don't we? For five minutes of fame, you know, getting on Pop Idol or you know, getting the best A-level results or whatever it is. Yet the one who was worthy of the eternal limelight let it go. He left the comfort of heaven. And so begins Jesus' descent. Notice the stages. Verse 7, he became a servant. Actually, the word is doulos. It's slave. Uh, the, the awesome God became a slave. Now, I wonder, could you imagine walking into the coffee lounge after tonight's service, only to find the Queen of England serving the coffee? I don't think it would happen, but just imagine that it did. And you're rather taken aback. Um, you can think, oh gosh, it's the Queen. So you say, oh, hello, Mum. But she says, oh, it's all right. Um, call me Lizzie. Can you imagine that? No, you can't, can you? Because it would never happen. I mean, what would the Queen of England want with Christchurch forwards? Well, actually, forget Christchurch forwards. Uh, think India. And come with me to, to the city of Delhi. Uh, outside the city of Delhi, there, there are mounds of rubbish. 
the rubbish tips outside Delhi. And there are a group of people who live on those rubbish tips called rag pickers. Rag pickers. And, and there are a lot of children that do that. Rag pickers are considered the lowest of the low, uh, living, uh, scavenging for rubbish. Now, could you ever imagine uh, the Queen resigning her position, selling up Buckingham Palace, you know, putting the adverts in the Telegraph for the corgis, and going to live on the rubbish dumps of Delhi? Because that is a little picture of what Jesus is doing here. Because look where he ends up at the next stage, verse 8. He doesn't just choose to serve. No, he goes even lower. He becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Notice in passing Jesus' willingness. Jesus wasn't an innocent third party forced to his death by an unjust father. No, he willingly went to the cross. Now, we should be shocked that Jesus died on a cross. You see, the cross is, is not only, humanly speaking, the most humiliating of deaths, you know, being nailed to a cross, stripped naked, but it's also the sign of the deepest humiliation. Don't look it up, but uh, Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, tells us that uh, being uh, hung on a tree, which is what the cross was, is the sign of being under God's curse. Being under God's curse, you don't go any lower than that. You see this road of humility that Jesus takes us down. It is a road without end, of infinite scope. But it raises a question, why on earth did Jesus do this? Why on earth did he leave the comfort of heaven to die on a cross? Well, it is because pride is so wicked. But why is pride so wicked? Well, because ultimately, you see, pride is always directed against God. You see, naturally, we envy God, his position. And at every opportunity, we'll show it. We'll disagree with him. We'll ignore him. We'll think we know better. We'll disobey him just to spite him. And yet he's God, not us. And so, in a sense, how dare we? How dare we claim the throne from God when he's so great And you see, for our pride, well, we can only hang our heads in shame before him. If you like, we deserve to be humbled by God. But the wonder of the gospel is that, well, Jesus takes our place. He becomes a man, and in dying, well, he humbles himself. He gets treated as though he is worthy of the deepest shame as he bows his head on the cross before God. And, you know, he walked that road for you and for me, because of our pride. And he lifts us up when we come to him. Do you see the wonder, the extent of Jesus' humility? It is this humility that is to mark us as we follow him. Can I ask, have you started down this road of humility yet? Maybe you've hit a brick wall, and you think, I'm not going to serve anymore, because, well, I'm above it, quite frankly. And you know there are things in church, perhaps, that you could help with, but you're holding back. Maybe it's not quite your gifting or not quite your favourite thing. We can be very selective, can't we, in our serving. Well, consider Jesus. Consider Christ's attitude. And you can never have that attitude. You can't say, I'm not going any lower. See, there is no area of service, no job that should be below us as Christians. Perhaps it's in your relationships and there are people that you've just given up with. You know, it's too hard to go on serving this person. And you want to throw in the towel because, well, even when you try, you don't get anything back. But there are always people like that. 
Well, ask yourself, what did Jesus get from his service of ye? A better reputation? Street cred? No, he got death. And again, remember that he walked that road for you. He can give you the strength to continue serving whoever it is you're finding it difficult to serve. And you say, Lord, please, I want to serve you in this relationship. Please strengthen me. Please change my attitude. So learn from his attitude. See that the road to humility is a road without end. But don't think from this that Jesus is out to crush you. No, again, we've seen humility is liberating. And notice another glorious truth from, uh, from Jesus' attitude. This, this is not just a road without end. It is the road to glory. It is the road to glory. Because look at where this road ultimately led. Verse 9. It didn't end in a funeral. It ended in a coronation. Uh, as Jesus' hu- humility uh, led to his throne, as his father crowned him, King of Kings. Jesus gave away his glory, only to be given it back. And notice what that means, verse 10. One day everybody will bow down to him. Everybody will bow down to him. Yet why are we so unwilling often to travel this road of humility? Why are we so unwilling? Well, we don't, we don't see that it is the road to glory. One of the best kept secrets, I think, in Sheffield is the Bowl Hill views. You know the, bowl, the, the views across the Bowl Hills? Off uh, Crooks High Street. It's one of my favourite places in Sheffield. I love it. Um, it's a road about three miles away from here. And it's a sort of long road with a lot of shops on it. And then there are some various side roads down, uh, down, down the street. And you look down the side roads, or we walk down the side roads, and, and you reach this wonderful view, the Bowl Hills. But it's a best-kept secret because, well, if you walk down Crooks High Street and look down the side roads, you actually you can't see the view at the end. And actually there's nothing very attractive about the side roads. I mean, there's kind of Coronation Street-style terraces and you know, maybe a couple of pokey takeaways... Sorry, forgive me, I'm a southerner. <laughs> but, but there's no reason why you'd want to walk down those side roads unless you knew what was at the end, the most staggering view, one of the best views in Sheffield. Well, it's rather the same with humility. You think, why would I want to travel down that road? It's so hard, it's so unattractive. Well, it is the most glorious road. It leads to glory. Can I talk to you tonight if you're discouraged? Because of your pride, you think, I'm so proud. God, God can't like me because I'm just so proud and I'm really struggling. Well, let me encourage you. God loves this attitude. It reminds him of his son. So keep going. God loves humility. But can I talk to us men here tonight as well? Because it's easy to think that this humility is perhaps a little bit wet, perhaps a bit feminine. You know, it's easy as a, as a bloke, isn't it, to, be, to want to be sold out for Christ and to think that all this talk of humility is just a bit of a cop-out. You know, you think, oh, it'll water, it'll water me down, it'll make me less effective. Well, no. Do you see, to be humble is to be like Christ. It's not a mark of weakness. A discipleship, you see, is not about being all macho for Jesus. It is about shining through his character, his humility. And notice that Jesus' humility was generated by his obedience, which makes it a mark of great strength and self-control. If we're humble like this, it will prepare us for heaven, because to be humble is to be like him. So see, the road of humility, it is the road to glory. So as we close, let me ask, what will you do the next time you see that person that you struggle with? Perhaps you'll see them tonight, after church. Well, when the temptation comes to ignore them, 
to be proud. Remember those two words, consider others. Consider others. And when you still find resistance in your heart, remember the next two words, consider Christ. Consider Christ. Remind yourself that he went further down that road of humility than you will ever have to go. But remind yourself that he did it for you, and it's a beautiful thing, and ask him for the strength to be humble. And as we do that in our relationships, we will stay united, and we will grow in unity as a church. It'll be a wonderful thing. So God says to us tonight, Christ Church, Lord, be humble, because it is the key to your unity. What will that humility look like? The mark of humility, to consider others. But why should you bother? Because of your model. Consider Christ. Let's pray.